right, before the break, I mentioned this curious story from Alabama, which I think there's some lessons in this for all of us, so let's talk about this item. This is a reporting by Robbie Brown, New York Times, as follows. Small Alabama town is struggling to understand how its 91-year-old mayor could have stolen $201,000 in taxpayer funds over the last three years without being caught until last week. Mary Ella Hickson pled guilty Thursday to stealing from River Falls, the town near the Florida border where she was the mayor for 37 years. She made payments disguised as legitimate town expenses to friends, relatives, and co-workers. Judge Ashley McCathin sentenced Hickson to 10 years in prison, but reduced her sentence to five years on probation because of her age. Hickson agreed to resign as mayor. That's a good plan. Pay back the stolen money, even better plan, and testify against accomplices. The town will hold an election to replace her. Well, we got to say that boy, that's probably the biggest theft in Florida you've heard about since Catherine Harris stole the 2000 election. And yes, to listener Dean, I am aware of the fact that George W. Bush is no longer president. But you know what? It's going to be a while before we can't we stop taking shots at him. Boy, it was a kind of a good idea to, for President Obama to start mentioning Bush and Cheney, don't you think? Or at least Bush. We we're highly amused by the fact that apparently the Republican Party has him hidden out under a rock somewhere for the duration of this election cycle, which is unfortunate. I, I like to see him come out and take get on the campaign stump for Romney. But anyway, uh, you know, we don't often quote from the Wall Street Journal editorial pages because we think they're nuts. But this guy that writes a column calls, called Al's Emporium, Al Lewis, he's got a few zingers and got a couple here we need to quote from. He started out talking about a settlement that Wells Fargo went through about, uh, well, so they didn't have to admit to some wrongdoing and paid off regulators, etc. But uh, Al Lewis said that America's economic decline is largely due to armies of negligent people who are paid commissions to push paper. If you believe what's alleged in countless lawsuits, fraud was commonplace among sellers, buyers, real estate agents, appraisers, title companies, and lenders. It is a lender's responsibility to properly underwrite a loan to be sure fraud does not occur, let alone run rampant. But when everyone's cheating and the government begs to take the baggage, a lender thinks more about the money than hiring and training bright, honest people to straighten it out. Yeah, and by the way, in spite of that talk and the debate about how they've been tough on Wall Street, uh, I don't know, we must have missed that one. Did you, did you catch that one, dear listener? Except for Bernie Madoff, who was running a you know, one-family man one family show. Has anybody else gone to jail? And speaking of dishonesty in a different field, uh, we note with some curiosity that, uh, that Claremont McKenna College got dropped uh, from its being listed as one of the best private liberal arts colleges because the school reported inflated SAT scores. In a statement on its website, Kiplinger said the college unfairly earned its place as the 18th-ranked school. As a consequence, all the schools with lower rankings were boosted up one slot. Some weeks back, the school's president, Pamela Gann, admitted that a senior administrator had reported inflated scores to rankings publications since 2005 to falsely boost the small, prestigious school's ranking among the nation's colleges and universities. 
And speaking of uh, outrageous lies, here's one I'll just report uh, as it appeared in the paper. Dateline Havana. Fidel Castro's relatives in Cuba and Miami denied the latest round of rumors about the 86-year-old former president's supposedly declining health after his prolonged public silence set the Twitterverse aflame with speculations in recent days. Son Alex Castro was quoted saying, The Commandante is well, going about his daily life, reading, doing his exercises. Why would anybody believe what the Castro family says about anything? But uh, when it comes to official pronouncements from communist countries, pretty hard to top this one. Last week, North Korea announced that it has missiles that can reach the U.S. mainland. The secretive nuclear-armed nation, purportedly nuclear-armed nation, has long claimed it could strike U.S. targets. But a defense statement last week was, was much more specific, saying its missiles could strike not only the bases of the puppet forces and the U.S. imperialist aggression forces bases in the inviolable land of Korea, but also Japan, Guam, and the U.S. mainland. Hmm, apparently the authorities in North Korea uh, <laughs> weren't paying attention when Saddam Hussein was making belligerent remarks. And, you know, you just have to wonder what they're thinking <laughs> when they start announcing, we've got missiles that could hit the U.S. I mean, you know, I, I got to think if you're part of the North Korean leadership that no good's going to come of that. And how about this item, which I think, uh, you know, warrants some comment. Apparently, Russia and Iraq... Right. Russia and Iraq announced a multi-billion dollar arms deal during a visit to Moscow by Iraqi Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki. Iraq agreed to buy more than $4.2 billion of heavy weapons, including helicopters and air defense systems, from Russia over the next year. Under the rule of Saddam Hussein, Iraq was a major buyer of Soviet weaponry, but since the U.S. invasion in 2003, it has spent a mere... 300 million on Russian military equipment and more than 6 billion on U.S. weapons. Analyst Alexei Malashenko said Iraq is sending a clear signal to the U.S. that it can conduct an independent policy. The message is we can sign contracts with Russia if we like. On the other hand, having seen how well Russian military equipment performed against the U.S., you have to wonder about this move. But then, like an awful lot of arms purchases that take place around the world, it doesn't have that much to do with actual military action as taking care of your political friends. Of course, the fact that Nuri al-Maliki now is regarding Russia as one of their friends is, is kind of a curious thing, considering the huge investment of U.S. money, equipment, and lives spent on a country that never attacked us. We like to do letters to the editor on this program, even if they weren't written to us, per se. Case in point is a fine letter written to the Sacramento News and Review by David Gonzalez, as follows. Regarding Bring It Home by Rachel LeBrock, Sacramento News and Review Editor's Note, September 27th, and War on Homelessness by Nick Miller, SNNR Midtown and Down, September 27th, SNNR co-editor Rachel LeBrock wrote that the only encounter she's had with a homeless guy is one who asks her to wipe her car window when she makes a stop. I walk around Midtown and actually interact with many of the homeless on a daily basis. I personally know some of the homeless, have talked with them, and have given money to some. The majority of them are not down and out because of the downturn in the economy. They either have drug problems or are mentally ill. Some even have violent tendencies and have been recently released from being incarcerated. 
These shelters have strict rules about no drugs, no drinking, no pets, and no fighting. So many of those you see in the streets of Sacramento do not want to stay in the shelters. They'd rather be doing their own thing and not have to follow the rules. Because Sacramento has been so lenient toward the homeless, things have gotten out of control. Many of the homeless sleep in the doorways of businesses and homes, going to the bathroom right there in the doorway. They have made local businesses' restrooms unusable, many times trashing them. They throw their trash all over the place. They dig in city trash bins, pull the garbage out, and throw it on the ground. They have no qualms about littering. I've seen fist fights between the homeless, and on one occasion, one pulled a knife on another one. One woman was asking me for money in exchange for sex, and she later said she had tuberculosis. One homeless man threatened to assault me because he thought I was staring at him. This is the reality if you walk midtown on a daily basis. So instead of making excuses for many of the homeless, you should get out of your car and walk the streets. You will see a totally different picture than the one SNNR is printing. To that I would just add, I think David Gonzalez has hit the nail on the head. I, I know some of you may disagree, and that is your right, but I would suggest that you, like Mr. Gonzalez, walk the streets of Midtown and see what you encounter. You know, we got about five or six minutes left. We need, we need to lighten the tone here at this point. All right, I've been sitting on this item from Mental Floss uh, since the summer. And doggone it, we really need to involve Dr. Andy Jones in this item, but I don't think he's available on short notice, so I'm just going to go ahead with it. The section in the magazine was titled, The Worst at What They Do. And item number one focused on the world's worst poet. Noted mental floss, Scotsman William McGonagall loved Shakespeare. So much so that when he got a chance to star in an 1858 production of Macbeth, he embraced the opportunity. As the title character, McGonagall attempted to write a new ending to the tragedy. He refused to die in the play's climactic battle. Sword fighting well past his cue until he was finally too exhausted to continue. But notes the magazine McGonagall's turn in Macbeth was just a prelude to his bizarre performances to come. A handloom weaver by trade, McGonagall faced a midlife crisis when the Industrial Revolution began to threaten his livelihood. In 1877, the 52-year-old had a revelation. He was meant to write verse. And despite a lack of talent, McGonagall started churning out poems. The next year he wrote Queen Victoria and asked for her royal patronage. When Her Majesty politely declined by post, McGonagall took the response as proof of interest. He set out on foot to visit Victoria in Balmoral, Scotland, 50 miles away. When he arrived, he was rebuffed by the castle guard, but the magazine notes the trip wasn't a total failure. McGonagall did manage to sell the guard a booklet of his poems before he returned home. Over the years, McGonagall worked the streets of Dundee and gained a reputation for his horrible poetry. As word spread, he was hired by local circuses to ply his trade for paying audiences. But, notes the piece by Clay Wirestone, the response was not kind. Most crowds felt compelled to throw eggs and vegetables at the poet after actually hearing his verse. Things apparently got so rowdy after performances in 1888 that officials officially banned McGonagall's act, reportedly for the poet's own safety. McGonagall? He would have none of it. His response came in verse. Fellow citizens of Bonnie Dundee, are ye aware of how the magistrates have treated me? Nay, do not stare or make a fuss. 
when I tell ye they have boycotted me from appearing in royal circus. Apparently the poet did gain a handful of ironic fans, especially college kids in Edinburgh. Friends sponsored the publication of a book, Poetic Gems, and several equally terrible collections followed. It was noted that McGonagall did die penniless, but he's still in print today. Now, the question here is, how bad was he? Well, notes that in The Joy of Bad Verse, Nicholas Parsons wrote of McGonagall, the experience is like that of being driven unsteadily down a meandering road in a rattling old banger, which finally abruptly turns into a brick wall. But dear listener, do judge for yourself. Here's the beginning of McGonagall's most famous work, The Tay Bridge Disaster. Beautiful railway bridge of the silvery Tay. Alas, I'm very sorry to say that ninety lives have been taken away on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. We're speechless, but Dr. Andy, if you're listening, drop us a line. I'd like to hear what you think about this. That's it for today's program. In the next two shows, we're going to be doing our pre-election ramp-up, look at uh, propositions and candidates, etc., etc. That should be fun. This program was produced, by the way, by Mr. Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett, and you've been listening to Radio Parallax. We will see you next week. Just give me that countryside.